Pastor Ben and I have known each other for a long time. We met in 2002. I'm going to embarrass him because he's not, he's not here, but he's watching. So he can like sit at home and he can't stop me. This is great. Uh, when I first met Pastor Ben, I was working for a missionary. I was, an in, I was interning for a, for a missionary, and we were doing an event in Mexico in, in uh, Hermosillo. And we were going down a couple weeks early. There was a mission trip coming. There was a big uh, healing crusade happening at the, the stadium in that city. And we were going down to start preparing things and doing marketing and doing all that stuff you got to do beforehand. So Ben had come up. Pastor Ben came up from Mexico City, and he was going to translate. And he said later, he said he thought he was going to show up stay in the hotel, come out and translate once in a while, go back home. That was going to be it. Well, little did he know. So the first time I met Pastor Ben, he was laying by the pool in, in jeans and a denim shirt, and he got up to say hi, and it, it was unbuttoned, like down to here. He had like one button at the bottom. He's just walking up like, hi, how are you? you know, so we, but we went, to, we went to lunch right after that, and then we started talking about worship. And we just immediately bonded, immediately found just a heart that resonated together over, over worship. And we just, you know, over, after that, we, uh, we became fast friends. Uh, we spent many days and nights putting up posters all over the city. Uh, we can tell you all kinds of stories about that. It was, it was like the, the, the two-person marketing team. We, uh, we did so much in two weeks. And we started, uh, he came on board with that, with that uh, missionary organization, as you guys probably know. And, and we spent a uh, almost two years together just traveling and driving and, and doing different things. So um, we've, been, we've been great friends since then. Um, I'm a, a, a pastor's kid. My dad was a pastor. He started a church in 1978. Um, I believe he married my mom in 79, and I was born in 1980. So it was like the best three years ever. I mean, you can't, you can't get better than that. Um, and I became a youth pastor when I was, I was like after the mission field. So I was working for that organization, came back home, spent about 10 years at my dad's church, leading worship, leading the youth and doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, so now I'm a bartender. So it's, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's amazing how God works. It's amazing how he leads you from step to step to step and how looking back, it all makes sense. Looking back, it's like I, I can see exactly the thread of God's will and God's work and God's purpose in my life. Even through things that, that make no sense to my mind, God is doing something positive. He's doing something that I can't understand in the moment. But later on, I'm like, that was exactly what I needed. So it's just amazing how he works. I want to start this morning by reading a scripture. That's always a good way to start. I heard somebody say once, always start by reading scripture. Because then even if you screw up everything else, at least God's word got out there. And his, his word works, amen? Let's start in John chapter 18, verse 37. This is um, the pre-crucifixion part of the story of Jesus, where Jesus has been arrested, he's been brought before the religious leaders, and he's eventually brought before Pilate, and Pilate is trying to figure out what's going on, because none of this makes sense. Here's, he's like, who are you? Why do all these people want you to die? I don't understand it. And so Pilate starts asking him questions, and he goes on. I'm just going to read a little section here. It says, Pilate said, this is uh, John 18, 37. Pilate said, so you are a king, because Jesus said, my kingdom, right, is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. 
Then he went out again to the people and told them he is not guilty of any crime. So I said already, uh, just to prepare you, I like to uh, plant seeds and then go away from them and then come back to them later. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to another section and we'll come back to that verse in a second. But um, as I said, I grew up in, in church and my dad was a pastor. It was a small church. I can, I can, Caden and I can relate in a lot of ways because we're like, we're in church all the time, right? We're pretty much like half time at home, half time at church. Like we, we, we live in church, right, Caden? Wednesday night, Tuesday night, Friday night, Sunday night, Thursday night. There's not even anything going on. We're still in church, like, because our parents are in church. And so we can't stay home alone. So our parents bring us to church. So, uh, when my dad started the church, we had an old building. It was an old Grange Hall, which I had to look up what that was. I'd always been told that's what it was, and I was like, I don't even know what that is. So I had to Google it last night. It's not that important. It's not that impressive. So <laughs> I won't even bore you with the details. But this is an, an, an old building in a small town in upstate New York, and um, there was no air conditioning. Uh, there, was, there was no the, the heat. So in upstate New York, you know, it gets cold. It gets it's snow. It's ice, right? There's, there's no heat. It's a, it's a wood stove. So in the morning, I remember going with my mom because we would live across this little parking lot. It was our house. We'd walk across at like 7 a.m. to start the wood stove so that, because it's like 50 degrees in the building at best, we start the wood stove so by the time people got there, it'd be warm enough. And, it, you know, it sort of worked. You know what I'm saying? It, it was, it was kind of warm. It was warm enough. There was no, no other heat. There was no running water. Uh, there was an outhouse. Yes, an outhouse downstairs attached to the building where the, where the woodshed was. This is, this is like what I grew up with. It's a, uh, a, a two-story building. We had the sanctuary upstairs, and the Sunday school and nursery were all downstairs. And um, there was these support poles downstairs. I remember we always used to love to climb those, and we always get yelled at because we weren't supposed to climb those. And I remember being like, like eight or nine and going to youth group and seeing the like 15-year-old boys showing off how strong they were by doing one of those like like lifting their whole body you know what I'm talking about you like brace yourself on the pole and like all the girls are like oh it's so hot but at, at eight or nine I was like wow those guys are strong I don't even know how they do that but the sanctuary upstairs and this is such an old building that when we would get like an energetic worship service where people are jumping and it's getting getting exciting I remember all the people that were in the construction industry would back up to the wall because they would watch the floor just flexing like six inches every time people jumped on it. And they were like, I'd, that's going to collapse. It's just going to happen. Fortunately, it never did. God had, had grace for us. But when I was a kid, there was stairs that were going down from the sanctuary to the bottom floor. And I could, I could jump from the top of the stairs, the regular flight of stairs, all the way down to the bottom and land on my feet. I was like six, six or seven. So one day I'm like, I thought this was a pretty impressive skill. I was, I was pretty proud of myself. So there's some, some older kids, you know, 10, 11 year old kids that are there. Um, and, and, and we're all just kind of hanging out there. I'm like, hey, you want to see me jump down the stairs? They're like, okay, yeah, all right. So I'm like, watch this. And I run and I jump and uh, I landed on the second to last step right on my butt. I mean, hard. And I, I'd like, I was, I was old enough to be like, I'm going to stuff this pain down inside of me until I can scoot around to the room next door and then I can cry. And that's what I did. It turns out, I didn't realize this till much later, 
that the memories I had of jumping down the stairs were not real. It never happened. That was not something I was actually able to do, as I proved to myself by <laughs> failing horribly. This, this thing that I had a memory of, it, it wasn't real. So in going back to, to Pilate's question, what is truth? You know, Pilate was a politician. If you look through the, through the story of, of Jesus, we love to place ourselves in the story, don't we? We love to see, see ourselves in the story. And most often we think we're like the, the Israelites. Well, the truth is, we're more like the Romans. Rome was a powerful, huge nation that exerted great military and political control over most of the known world. And Pilate is the politician in this nation. I think the thing that the, 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 the question that Pilate is really asking is very apropos to our current climate because I think he was in a very similar climate. We're conflicting ideas, conflicting perspectives, conflicting stories about what's really happening in a, in a, in a world with, with even worse communication and less communication than we have today. Finding out what's actually happening was incredibly difficult. So I think Pilate was maybe a little jaded, maybe a little cynical, and, and Jesus is talking about the truth, and he's like, I've heard this before, what is, what is truth? See, the problem is truth can be complex. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Ready? I'm going to state some, some, some facts. It's too hot in here. For some people, that's true. For some people, it's not, right? That music is too loud. That's a, that's a, that's a complex, like, yeah, maybe. How about this one? This is one you had to think about a little bit. Gravity makes things fall. Well, unless you're up in the International Space Station, then it looks like it's making things float. But actually, you're all just falling at the same speed, so that's why it makes it... You see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a complexity about, about truth that can be hard to, to completely comprehend. Let me give you another one. It's a little, a little deeper. God is good. That is true, absolutely true, but that is a complex truth. And if you don't think it is, you haven't lived enough yet. Right? Because I was talking to a, a friend of mine on Friday night. We're talking about, he said, we're talking about a song. Talk about um, uh, Rattle, about how my God is able to save and deliver and heal and restore anything that he wants to. And, and not my friend, but a person he was talking to was like, he was like, that isn't true. And his friend was like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, if he, if he could do that, then he would do that. Like, well, it's more complicated than that, right? And that, that issue of if God is good, then what about suffering? What about pain? What about hardship? What about death? That is probably the core question of theology. And most of our theological differences revolve around how we answer that, that question. Does he want to? Does he not want to? Is he just building character by giving us cancer? Is it something that we have to have faith? To? Like, There's all these answers that, that people have. And, and most of the core differentiations between various you know, denominations of, of, of Christianity often come down to that basic question. God is good, but the complexity of that is difficult. Truth can be difficult to figure out. You can think you know it and be wrong. 
In fact, there is something right now that you believe to be true that is actually not true. It might be something small, like we're going to have chicken for dinner. I don't know. It might be something big. I'm going to work at this place for the rest of my life. There's things that you might believe to be true, and can we be humble enough to admit that we might be wrong? I want to talk this morning about, I believe there's three levels of truth. Three levels of of truth. The first one would be personal experience. Personal experience. What has happened to me, what I was there for, what I experienced. You ever have two people arguing about something that happened? You're like, I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't comment on what happened because I did not experience it. I don't, I don't have any personal involvement. I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. Um, and if you boil it right down, what we're really talking about is memory. Experience is really just memory. Basically, if we, re, if we restate this, what I remember is what's true. Now, obviously, there's some problems with this. The biggest one is that memory is not reliable. When we remember something, we like to think of our, our, our brains as like a big computer, right? You, you put in a file, and then later on, I pull out the file, and it's the same. That's not how your brain works. Your brain puts pieces of stuff all over the place, and then when it wants to remember it, it pulls the pieces out, as many as it can find. And the pieces it can't find, it fills in the blanks. It's true. You can even look up. This is not even, this is not just a, I'd say just, this is not a religious truth. It's a, it's a fact accepted by all people, regardless of religion, that memory is, is, is unreliable. And they found even in criminal cases, there have been people that had very detailed, very clear, very trust, trustworthy sounding memories of something that happened that later it turns out based on things like DNA evidence or fingerprints that it's not, it didn't happen that way. It's not true. And it's, 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 it's caused a lot of issues among, among um, you know, prosecutors about, well, how, do we, how, do, how can we be sure what's actually happening? Because eyewitness testimony is really the basis for our entire legal system. See, when we remember something, we t- we're telling ourselves a story about that, that memory. There's a, there's a narrative. There's a, there's, there's a, a, a bias. Because in life, you are the hero. I am the hero of my own story, of your own story, right? And so we're going to naturally remember situations not in the most objective way. We're going we're gonna to shade it just a little bit. Yeah, I lost my temper, but I, this was happening, and this person said this, and then I was going through this, and I have lots of reasons why I'm justified in what I did. Whereas the other person tells a story, and they're like, they just flew off the handle. I don't know what, what happened. They're crazy. But that's not how we remember it, because the hero can't be crazy. The hero always has a reason. 
See, my memory of jumping down the stairs was a false memory. I don't know if it was a dream. I don't know if it's something I just created and, and just invented, but, but it's something that didn't really happen, but I believed in enough to throw my little six-year-old body into the air with all my strength. I had faith in that memory. I believed that, that, that memory. And it's also possible, because I was six or seven, and this was now at, at least 20 years ago, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that that story isn't even true. That I might be remembering details that never happened. Now, I have talked to the, the person that was there watching me. I'm still friends with him. And, uh, and we've talked about this. He said, oh, I remember that. He goes, he goes you said, want to see me jump down the stairs? And I was like, yeah, right. And then you did it. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so I know it actually happened, but the details of it, who knows? See, personal experience has problems with emotion, with bias, with missing sections, with little areas that, you ever have a conversation with, with, with someone and you go away thinking the conversation went, went one way and they go away thinking the conversation went another way and you come back and talk about it and they're like, well, you, you, know, you say, you said that, and they're like, I never said that. You're like, what are you talking about? You're a sociopath, you're crazy, you're trying to manipulate me. What's wrong with you? Right? Because there must be something wrong with their memory. They're wrong. Because I remember. I've had relationships with people where I thought, they're insane. They don't remember anything that they said. They don't remember anything that happened. They just create their own reality for whatever they want. Not being willing to acknowledge that maybe it's me that doesn't remember correctly. Maybe I have an agenda in my own heart and head that's trying to set me up for, for success and make me look good. That's a hard truth to admit to ourselves. The second level of truth is combined experience. I'm gonna call it combined experience. Basically the thing that many people have all experienced. And so even the Bible says this is more reliable. It says every, everything must be established by two or three witnesses, right? This is Old Testament law. When, when somebody is accused of something, it can't just be one person saying they did it and then saying, them saying that they didn't. It's got to be two or three people. Yes, they all agree. Yes, this, this happened. The more experiences you combine, the better, right? Because you can have a lot of people have the same experience, and it doesn't mean that it's a universal truth. Some examples. It's always cold in December. That's true for a lot. Of, you can gather millions and millions of people that agree that is true. Yet we have an experience. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's cold for us. I don't know. I, I still laugh when I watch people. It's December. It's like, you know, 59 degrees. And it's like winter hat, parka, gloves, scarf, boots. They're like, huddled up, walking down the street. I'm like, I don't know if it's that cold. <laughs> then there's the Canadians with their tank tops, flip-flops. This is great! <laughs> um, milk is bad for you. I grew up drinking milk. My dad was a, was a, grew up on a, on a dairy farm. We actually had, had goats when I was younger. We had dairy goats, and we had drank goat's milk. Um, not because we were hippies, because 
We were, we were rednecks, I guess. But I, I grew up, I mean, I, I had cereal. My mom used to have to buy, so we, this is one of the reasons we got goats. My mom used to have to buy like four gallons of milk every week, every week to get through the week. Because we would just, my, me and my brother and sister, there's three of us, we would crank through that milk, mostly on cereal. We ate cereal all the time. I don't eat as much anymore, so like once or twice a week now, it's okay. <laughs> but for me, I'd be like, people are like, oh, milk upsets my stomach. Like, what are you talking about? That's not true. Well, yeah, for some people it is, for some people it isn't, right? You need a bigger pool of experience to see that these things are, are true. A, a, a bigger, the bigger the, the range of experiences you can combine, the more kind of, you can say, okay, this seems to be true for most people, and then this percentage, this happens too. And, and, but the more we get, the more people we combine, the more complex that truth can be, right? The more hard to figure out, okay, what's, what's real? And this is where we get things like science, where we, we, we try to find a representative group and say, okay, what happens when we do this? What happens in this situation? How do people respond in this situation? And there's actually a, a, a little talked about crisis in science called the reproducibility crisis. They found that when they've tried to reproduce studies, they got a different result. Because it's really hard to find the right people, to get the, the universal experience, to find you know, people that are represented from all different walks of life, all different races, all different ages, all different genders, all, different, all the different things that, that can be complicating factors. This is also where we get democracy. The idea of democracy is that what, the, what most of the people want is probably going to be the right thing. Now, it's obviously problematic, right? But it's better than one person deciding what everybody gets. But there are still problems. There's problems like narrative. What we get is we get, instead of us telling ourselves a story, we get a bunch of people all telling a story. See, our, our, our brains love narrative. There's a reason why back before history, back before things were written down, things were related in stories. Right? You, you, you tell the story. Even the Israelites, they, they would tell the story of Egypt to their kids, who would tell it to their kids, who would tell it to their kids. And we like stories. Stories are, are clear. Stories have a good guy and a bad guy. Stories have a beginning, middle, and end. Stories have a point. Stories have things that all mean something. Everything in the story ties together. You ever heard of the term uh, uh, Chekhov's gun? Chekhov's gun is the idea that when you watch a show and they point out a gun on the mantelpiece, at some point that gun's going to be fired because otherwise, why is it on the mantelpiece, right? So we like stories where everything, there's no random complications. There's no extra little bits that don't mean anything. Everything ties together, and it's very meaningful. And that's a, that's a problem because sometimes stories aren't that simple. Sometimes the reality, the, the truth, isn't that, that simple, you guys remember um, there was a, in, I think it was 92, 1992, there was a lawsuit against McDonald's. You guys remember this? A woman spilled coffee on herself, sued McDonald's. At the time, and I remember this, at the time it was, it was the story was told like this. 
A woman got caught from, from McDonald's, spilled it on herself, and sued McDonald's for $2 million. And she won. Isn't that crazy? Can you believe our country? Unbelievable. We need to get rid of these frivolous lawsuits, right? That, that was the narrative. That was the story. It's simple. Everything ties together. There's a good guy and a bad guy. I'm not sure how McDonald's got to be the good guy. Well, I think I know, but somehow McDonald's is the good guy in this story. Well, it wasn't until much later, I forgot how I ran across this, but the truth of the story is much different. There was a woman, her name was uh, Stella Liebeck. She was a passenger. She was riding with her, her grandson. She gets coffee from McDonald's. His, he was driving a, a, a 90s Ford Probe, and there was no cup holders in the car. So she puts the, the coffee between her legs to open it and put cream and sugar in. She, she opens it up, and the lid gets stuck, and it dumps the whole coffee, the whole contents of that cup, into her lap. She's wearing sweatpants. The liquid absorbs into the sweatpants. The coffee was 190 degrees. At 190 degrees, liquid will cause third-degree burns in 15 seconds. She goes to the hospital. She's hospitalized for eight days. She has to have skin grafts. She's permanently disfigured. She had third-degree burns over 6% of her body. She contacted McDonald's and said, would you, your coffee was way too hot. Can you help me with my medical bills? which were around $10,000. McDonald's said, we'll give you 800 bucks. It's your fault, you spilled it on yourself. So she sued. She sued, I think, for 20,000. The jury, after hearing all the testimony, was so angry at McDonald's attitude and, and, and lack of, of care, empathy, that they awarded her 200,000, and they said, but you're 20% culpable because you spilled it on yourself, so it's only 160,000. McDonald's is 80% culpable and said, we're going to award punitive damages to punish McDonald's so they won't do this again of 2.7 million, which were later reduced by the judge to 600,000. 2.7 million, by the way, is the amount of money McDonald's makes two days on two days of selling coffee. Every two days, they make 2.7 million. This was in the 90s when it was 49 cents a cup. See, that's a whole different story. I don't know about you, that's a different story than I heard when that case first happened. That's a different narrative. Now, it's probably because McDonald's has a lot of money for marketing firms, and they can put their story out there, and I don't think Stella Liebeck had a marketing firm, so she was uh, a little different. But that changes. See, truth is a lot more complex than it really seems like it is on the surface, isn't it? Instead of a woman who's exploiting a legal loophole and trying to get a payday, we find a woman who's suffered and a corporation trying to not be held accountable. Our last thing I want to talk about, what I'm going to call heavenly experience. I'm going to call it heavenly experience because a lot of times when people think of this, they think of Bible. The Bible. But I would submit to you that it's actually much bigger than that. I'm going to show you why. Genesis chapter 9, verse 24. It 
this might get sensitive, and I, I apologize if it, if it does. This is a interesting. It's a good example. Genesis 9:24. Some of you might know where I'm going with this. In the story, this is after Noah's Ark. Noah gets drunk. He passes out. He's naked. Um, his son, Ham, goes in and sees him. There's a, there's, a, there's a connotation here in the original language that doesn't necessarily get translated where Ham was, and this is most co- commentaries agree with this, Ham was not, didn't merely go in and see him and then go out and tell his brothers. He went in and, and despised him and went out and mocked his father to his brothers. So his brothers go in. You've heard the story. They, have a, they, they take a blanket in backwards, and they, they cover him up. Noah wakes up. He learned what, what happened. Siblings always give you away, won't they? And it says in verse 25, Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. Then Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed. And may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth. May Japheth share the prosperity of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. Now, over the years, in the early 19th century, this was interpreted a certain way. It's called the curse of of, of Noah. You can look this up. Canaan was kind of removed from the story. Ham was emphasized. And it was assumed that Ham had dark skin. In fact, some people, some theologians even, argued that part of the curse was Ham's dark skin. And that Ham immigrated to Africa and that every dark-skinned person was descended from Ham. And that therefore the appropriate biblical place for dark-skinned people was as servants. That biblically, dark-skinned people were under a curse and the biblical position was below, beneath, less than. And it was used for hundreds of years to justify slavery in this country. Matthew chapter 5. I think probably the best example, maybe the only com- really complete example of one of Jesus' sermons, where Jesus, it kind of gives the full thing, doesn't it? This is what Jesus taught. And it talks about a lot of stuff. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek. It goes through that stuff. And it says in verse 38, I'll read just this section. I'm going to read it in the, in the New Living Translation. It says, you've heard that the law says. And that's a, that's a fine translation. It, 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 it kind of, he, what he says is, you have heard it said from days of old, is the, is the, the, the kind of more literal tran- translation. 
But I'm going to read it from the New American Standard where it says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. In this section of, of, of scripture, Jesus says six different times, some version of, you have heard that it was said, or it has been said, or people have said, or people of old used to say. He's, he's saying something here, and he's really coming against the idea of narrative. See, when we, when we have a personal experience, we have that, that, that memory, we're saying something to ourselves. Oh, I remember when this happened. Or someone has told us, don't try that. It's going to backfire on you. Don't do that. That's not what I would do. Let me tell you about what happened to me and this other guy and this other guy. See, the person that we're most likely to believe is ourselves. So when we hear ourselves saying something, it's really powerful. So Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, and you've said it, and this is commonly held belief. When someone comes against you, you fight them off. You get back at them. Take what they took from you. Show them who's boss. Saying, but I'm saying something different. And he goes on six different times to say, you have heard that it was said. You've heard what you've told yourself. You've heard the conclusion of combined experience of a nation. You've, you've heard, this is what we do. This is who we are. This is how we handle these, these things. It's common knowledge. Everybody knows. In fact, Jesus is even quoting the law in other parts of this scripture. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that's from Exodus. That's from the Mosaic law. It wasn't just an idea. It was something that was, you would say, biblical. He's saying, I'm telling you something different. I'm saying something that's, that's coming against that and saying, ah, that's not the complete truth. There's something more. He talks about murder. He talks about divorce. He talks about different issues. And he says, you've heard that it was said, this is what you've always accepted as being. This is what we do. This is the truth. This is reality. But I'm saying there's something more than that. There's a deeper level to go to. See, the, new, the, the Old Testament dealt with the external mostly. It was about don't do this. Don't do that. Don't build an idol. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't, it's, it's mostly just kind of like behavioral, Right? But Jesus comes and says, it's deeper than that. You've heard it said, don't murder. I'm telling you, don't have hatred in your heart because the damage you can do can be almost as bad, both to the other person and to yourself. And instead of standing on, well, I didn't actually kill him, so I've got nothing to be sorry about. Jesus is like, no, no, no. I'm calling you to something higher, something deeper. I'm calling to change your emotions and your feelings and your thinking. You may have told yourself, you may have heard people, they may have told you some things. They may have told you it's only going to get worse. 
may have told you that there's no hope, may have told you that you're never going to be healed, you're never going to be successful, you're never going to be able to do it. That's never going to work. Listen, the town where I'm from is, is the king of that's never going to work. If you share an idea with anybody, I don't care who it is, anybody in the whole town, like, I'm thinking about starting a business, that's never going to work. I'm thinking about trying to invest my money, that's never going to work. I'm thinking about maybe hoping for something better and believing for something better and trying to build something better, that's never going to work. Just give up. How dare you think you're better than your grandfather? How dare you think you can rise above all of us? Who do you think you are? So that, that culture becomes, it just, it just saturates the entire area so that everybody has this idea, trying to do something bigger and better. I want to just be satisfied with, with poverty. What's the matter with you? You may have been told that your marriage is never going to be better. You may have been told that, that you know, things are only going to keep getting worse. But Jesus is saying something different. That's the core of what I want to share with you this morning is that you may have heard it said. You may have heard something said by yourself, by others, by society, by, by philosophy, by science, by, by politics. But Jesus is saying something different. Jesus is saying something better. Jesus is saying, no, there's more than that. There's a higher level than that. And yeah, you know what? The economic forecast may not be great, but Jesus is saying, I'm not living by the economic forecast. I'm living by something higher than that. Jesus is saying, yeah, you know what? Your marriage may have been rough the past 10 years, but I'm saying it can be better and there's hope and you can do something about it. Jesus is saying, yeah, you may have had chronic illness, but you know what? That's not the end. That's not over. It's not hopeless. There's something better. There's something more. In this, in this message, I think Jesus was trying to tear down the stronghold of lies that seem like truth. Where people take something, and maybe there's a, there's a kernel of truth in there, but it gets surrounded by narrative, and by bias, and by emotion, and by history, and by experience, and by memories, and by things that aren't real, and it creates a lie so powerful that it subjugates a nation. that is living under law, living under, under oppression, instead of under grace, instead of under mercy. He's saying something different. See, part of the problem with, with our three levels of truth is that we usually have them in the reverse order of what they should be. We believe God's word through the filter of our culture and our beliefs and what people have told us. And then we believe our culture and our, our society until we have an experience, and that's, that's the highest form. My experience is the highest form of truth. And in fact, our experience is the least reliable form of truth. There's a book... Um, called How to Hear God's Voice by a man named Mark Verkler. Really good book. Highly recommend it. It was, it was life-changing for me. And he talks about the, I'll, I'll summarize the book so you don't have to buy it. Um, <laughs> he talks about basically journaling. He's like, talk to God, picture God, ask him a question, write down. Just start, just start writing. Don't overthink it. He said the, the, the problem with us in Western society is that we emphasize our, our intellect over everything else. 
So we try to figure everything out. We, kind of, we, we try to create a system for everything. We try to make everything about, I can understand this, therefore this is true, right? So he's saying, ignore all that and just write down whatever you feel like writing down. Like, well, how do I know it's God? Just, just write it down. But he says, one of the th- problems that can happen, and, and he says, have spiritual mentors and people you can talk to and say, what do you think of this? Do you think this is something from God or is this something from my, my, myself? And that way you can have a check, right? Especially on, on big things. You know, I feel like God's telling me to sell everything and move to South America. Maybe check with your pastor. I don't know. Yeah, check with your wife. <laughs> if she's, let me give you a little tip. If she's not on board, it's not God. <laughs> I used to tell kids, you know, you get homeschool Christian kids. No offense, Caden, this isn't about you. I'm talking about somebody else. And they're, and they're 15, 16, and they meet a person of the opposite sex at youth group, and they're like, we're destined to be together. I just know it. It's true love. We're going to be together forever. I'm like, you're 16. You're not going to be the same person in two years. Like, you don't even know who you are yet, let alone who you're supposed to be with. And they'd be like, but our parents just don't see it. I'd be like, well, if it's God, he can tell your parents. If your parents aren't on board, it's not God. At least not, not yet. And you can wait until they're on board. Because if it's God, he'll get your parents on board at the right time, in the right moment. But this book talks about when we're trying to listen to God, sometimes there's an issue. There's something in the way. Maybe it's trauma. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's a desire for something else. He says it's really an idol. It's something set up in, in front of God and in front of you, between you and God. And so when we, when we hear God speaking, you know, God's, God's words are always truth, right? God's words are always accurate. They're always true. At the deepest, most complex level, and at the simplest level, his word. That's what I love about the Bible. You know, the Bible is true when you read it simply, and it's true when you dig into it and find out what the Greek and Hebrew say. When you dig in and find out, you know, what was the culture, what was the, all those things you can really dig in and study, it's still true all the way down. So for a five-year-old, it's true. For, for a PhD, a doctorate in divinity, it's still true. So God speaks, and it's true. But sometimes we hear his words filtered through something else. And he says, we can, we can think God is saying something, but it's been distorted and filtered through the lens of the issue in our life, the idol in our life. There's a great biblical example in Numbers of Balaam. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I think it's the king of, of Moab sees the Israelites coming. It's this huge nation. They've defeated giant armies. It's obvious to everyone that God is with them, and he's scared. And so he goes to Balaam, who is a, who is a prophet, 
who is a servant of God, really is. He's not, he's not faking it. He's not just pretending. And he says, I want you to come curse these people. And, and Balaam says, let me ask God. And he goes and asks God, and God says, no, I've blessed the Israelites. You're not allowed to curse them. Well, then the king sends back some really distinguished people, some really honorable people, some really impressive people, some really famous people, some people that Balaam really wanted to like him. And they offer him some money, some clothes, some power, some privilege. They say, whatever you want, the king says. Whatever you want, just go curse these people for me. So Balaam goes back and asks God again. And this time, Balaam hears, go with these people, but only say what I tell you. Now, did God change? When I was a kid, this, this part of the scripture I could never understand because I'm like, Balaam just did what God said to do. I don't understand. So Balaam, Balaam goes with them, and he's riding his, his donkey, and there's an angel in the road that's going to kill Balaam. And the donkey sees it, and Balaam doesn't. The donkey swerves out of the way. And Balaam beats his donkey, stupid donkey. What's the matter with you? Go this way. Finally, it says that he's on a road with walls on either side, and the angel's in the way, and the donkey can't get off the road. So the donkey pushes up against the wall and, and, and squeezes his leg against the wall. And Balaam's infuriated. He kicks the donkey and beats the donkey, and he's like, and, and God gives the donkey a voice to speak. The donkey says, why are you beating me? <laughs> and Balaam is so angry that he doesn't even stop and think, uh, maybe I should reassess the situation because my donkey is speaking to me. He's like, because you're dumb, and you're not doing what I tell you to do. This is not the real, I'm translating, you know, <laughs> paraphrasing is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> And then God opens his eyes and he sees the angel and he's like, oh, I get it. But I'm all, I was always like, why is Balaam in trouble? He did what God said to do. And I, I, I can't prove this. I can't tell you this is what the Bible says. This is just my opinion, all right? My opinion. You can disagree. It's fine. You'll be wrong, but that's all right. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Balaam heard God's voice through the filter of his desire for what the people the king had sent were offering. Through his desire to please them, through his desire to, to get the privilege and power and money and whatever else they were offering from them. And so, and so God says, don't go with them. And it's distorted through his idol and Balaam hears, go with them, but only do what I tell you to do. Because Balaam's thinking, I mean, it can't hurt to go with him. I won't say anything bad. I'll just... I'll just dabble a little bit. It's okay. I'll be fine. It's like those who thought that slavery and white supremacy were biblical ideas. They're taking the Bible and filtering it through personal experience, through combined experience of their culture and their area, like, this is what everyone believes. Of course this is true. We need to get rid of the filter of our experience and our culture. 
Romans 12, 2 has just been a, a verse that has been, I've, I've heard preached probably a dozen times in the last three months. From Pastor Ben, from Pastor Kara, from Steve, yeah, I mean, everybody. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Don't let them create what's true. Don't let them define what's, what's, what's real. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. By changing the power of memory, power of experience, power of what you've been told. Because memory and experience will land you on your butt on the second to last step. And it's not fun. See, when God transforms us, we reverse the order of believability. Like, I have my experience, and that's, and that's real. I've got the combined experience, and there's truth in that. But the highest thing is what God is saying. So Holy Spirit, transform my thinking so that I can clearly hear and clearly see, God, what you're doing, what you're saying. You know, my, my, my personal belief about the issues of our world is that we're not clearly seeing and hearing what God is saying and doing. Right, that was what, what, what Jesus said. Jesus said, I only do what my father's doing. I only say what my father's saying. And Jesus has a clear connection. So the, our, our battle is to have that same clear connection. It's about thinking. It's about, it's about our perspective. It's about our experience. It's about our, our, our memory coming and saying, you know, God comes and says, you can do it. And you're like, nah, I tried before. Didn't work. I asked all my friends. Didn't work for them either. So God, I'm going to wait because I don't know. So that, that kind of transformation takes the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna get real Pentecostal on you for a second. I think the Bible without the Holy Spirit can be extremely dangerous. I'm gonna say that again. The Bible without the Holy Spirit can be extremely dangerous because it's been used to justify all sorts of evil over thousands of years because people take their own desires, their own idols, their own wants, and say, how can I manipulate this to prove that what I'm already wanting to do, already believing, is true? But the Holy Spirit comes and says, you know, this is the way. Walk in it. Don't turn to the right or to the left, right? We need the Holy Spirit to change the way we think, to recognize the lies that we believe. The lies have no power when you know that they're lies. You can laugh at them, right? You break the power. The last part of Romans chapter two says, then you will learn to know God's will. I would say God's, God's word, God's truth, which is good and pleasing and perfect. See, truth always comes from God. The real source of all truth is from, from, from God. It used to be that, that, that we would recognize that, that, that as we were searching for even scientific truth, we'd be like, okay, God, the truth has to come from you because no amount of 
of, of study or, or, or intellect or intelligence is enough to truly understand what's going on. We need you. Truth always comes from God, and it's always good. Experiential truth is, is often not, not good. It's definitely not perfect, but God's truth is always good and pleasing and perfect. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we know that there's, there's lies that have power in our life. We know there's things that we're believing that are, that are stopping us from doing what you called to do. There's, there's things you're trying to tell us that we're not hearing because our experience is saying something different. Our culture, our, our surroundings are saying something different. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you, we invite you, we ask you, transform us, help us. We wanna see you. We wanna see you clearly. We wanna know who you are, know what you're saying, know what you're doing. And Lord, we wanna have the courage, the courage to say even to ourselves, I've heard it said, but God, you're saying something different, something deeper, something higher, something more, something powerful, something life-changing, something world-changing. And we wanna be agents of change. We wanna be bringers of love and life and peace and joy, not just to our families and not just to our church, Lord God, but to our workplace and our world and everywhere we go. So God, transform us, help us, open our eyes, remove the filters, remove the things that can distort what, what you're, you're saying. We need you, God, we can't do it on our own. So we surrender to you, God. We humbly ask you, help us to see truth. Help us to see truth. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.